Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Professor Kevin Volkan, a founding faculty member and professor of psychology at California State University, Channel Islands. Professor Volkan holds doctorates in clinical and quantitative psychology. He's a graduate of the Harvard School of Public Health and a former Harvard Medical School administrator and faculty member. He's an author of Dancing Among the Maenads, The Psychology of Compulsive Drug Use, which is available to download for free at freepsychotherapybooks.org. He's also a working musician and plays guitar in two bands. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. I've been wanting to um, explore and I haven't had time to do, but I'm looking at a sort of a psychoanalytic look uh, at musicians and music and stuff like that. And it's interesting because I think I, I sent you the thing, you know, the, the latest training that I've been getting, I just finished a three-year program with this guy, Robert Fosnack, who's a union analyst, who was Hillman's protege. He would not like me saying that, by the way. So Robbie, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to, this is a shortcut to describe you. He was Hillman's protege, uh, James Hillman's protege, and um, uh, who, you know, is sort of the founder of archetypal psychology in a rogue union, right? The rogue union of all times. And then Robbie and him had a sort of great love-hate relationship. And um, Robbie has sort of gone in his own thing and and developed something he calls embodied imagination. And um, it's a form of dream work. And I did it uh, personally. I was referred to Robbie and I went to see him and, um, you know, did the work with him as just a patient. And it was, it was very, very great for me. And I thought, this is wonderful. And I thought, maybe I should train on this. I have nothing else to do. Um, this would be a good thing to do. And so I, I did the training. I finished it. Uh, it was a three-year training. I finished it uh, last year. And it is a form of dream work, which is very cool because Robbie likes to work a lot with artists and musicians. People use it for psychotherapy. They use it for um, medical conditions. 
And, um, but Robbie likes to work with artists and especially actors and writers and, um, and, uh, and he's very interested in working with musicians. And so I was the, the, the practitioner in the group who was also a musician. So I did a lot of my work around, a lot of my dream work around um, my playing and playing better and my, my final project for, you know, we had to do a final project for the training. And my final project was to play at a club in Hollywood because we did the training in LA, play in a club in Hollywood and invite everybody in the group down to listen. And Robbie and uh, Jill, uh, who's the other uh, trainer, uh, got to come down and listen to us play in Hollywood. That was my final uh, final exam, <laughs> which was really cool and fun. Um, but it's a great method for working with, with, with artists because you, what it really does is it unleashes creativity. It's not so, um, in a kind of neo-Jungian sense, it's not so pathology driven. It's really about um, enhancing people's creativity. That enhanced creativity can help you with pathology. It can help you with medical problems. It can also help you with uh, artistic endeavors. And so Robbie's a writer. He writes a lot. He works with writers. He's worked with a lot of actors, Royal Shakespeare people, a lot of actors in LA. And, um, and so that part of it is really attractive to me. You know, after dealing with pathology for years and years and years, it's interesting to have a technique that I can now do with people just to enhance their creativity. So my practice now is really just centering on this stuff, this kind of dream work. And it's very cool because the other thing it does is that I think it's brilliant that Robbie did is he takes Hillman's sort of phenomenological view of things, which Hillman sort of graphs onto archetypes and things like that. Um, and he just sort of says, well, you know, we don't really need to graft it onto all these archetypes and everything. Let's do like, you know, Gindlin sort of phenomenological psychotherapy. Let's take all our knowledge about what we think is the unconscious and where we think it's coming from and where we think these images are coming from through the unconscious. Let's take all that stuff and bracket it off and put it over here. And then we we'll just, we go into the dream work. We're just going to have an experience of the dream images. Right? We're just going to go in and have an experience of the dream images. And the big thing in the work is that you experience the dream images not only from your, your, your sense of self, your ego, if you will, but you also then tran transit into the images themselves and experience what's going on in the dream from the different forms or different images in the dream, which is very, very powerful experience to have. And then you just don't interpret anything. You just have the experience and then you that's the dream work. And then later on, you can talk about an interpreter or do whatever you want. But the, the actual dream work session, you don't do the interpretation. You actually put that to the side. I really like that. I like the idea that I don't have to bring the baggage with me into the experience of the dream. And that was very, very uh, appealing to me. And not to be making assumptions about where the images come from and, you know, are they archetypes? Are they from repressed stuff? You know, whatever else, which is the thing we were talking about earlier about like, you know, I don't have to bring the tribe into the dream work, right? I don't have to bring the limits of whatever tribe I'm in into the dream work and just do the dream work and have the experience of it. And I found it very, very powerful. And so this is the latest thing that I'm doing, you know, that I'm, I'm really into. And, and Robbie's a very cool guy. I, I, I love him to death. He's just the most interesting person uh, I think I've run across. And the other person that uh, we work with is um, uh, uh, Jill. And she's a union analyst. What's her last name? I'm blanking on it now. Um, and she's an analyst on the East Coast of America. Robbie is um, bi-coastal, bi-multi-country. He's half the time in Australia, half the time in Santa Barbara up here, and everywhere else in the world, traveling around all the time. And uh, The unions like to travel. I've never met people more in my life who like to travel than these unions. Unbelievable. They're going everywhere, you know. 
That's so the pandemic true. is really affecting them, you know. Uh, but I, I, I like to mention that stuff because that's what I'm doing. That's the most, um, at least you know, as far as practice stuff that I'm 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 really involved in now, and and trying to build a, a practice doing the dream work has been really interesting because it's really hard to explain to, you know, person off the street, you know, what you're doing and. You know, how can you not, how can you do some sort of form of something that doesn't have any assumptions about, you know, uh, the mind or the unconscious or anything? That's really difficult. <laughs> so I'm wrestling with that, that right now, you know, that, that's been kind of fun. Um, yeah, but that's really at the essence of psychoanalysis is like at the core, it should be it's just exploration of the mind, right? Without any idea of like what yeah. the ultimate goal is or like yeah. putting any of these theories yeah. on top of it. Just explore yeah. the mind. I think so too. And if you look at the writings of really great analysts, you know, Freud, you know, Jung, you know, you are seeing when they're doing their sessions, you know, they are not bringing the baggage in with them. You know, you know the interpretations, you slip it in, right? But it's not like, it's not like you're beating people over the head with it. And, you know, even, even my dad, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I some bias that I think he's a great analyst, but, you know, you read some of his, his, his works and, he wrote, by the way, um, I'll, I'll give him a shout out. Um, he's got a new book out, which he talked to you about already. So I won't mention that one, but he has a psychoanalytic textbook on, on psychoanalytic technique. That is literally the best textbook on psychoanalysis I've ever read in my life. It is really brilliant. And you really get the sense of, you know, how an analyst is with the patient and, you know, with warm neutrality in a very phenomenological way where you're just, and he, he describes it as you're walking along with the patient during the process. You know, you're not, you're not beating over the head with your theory, you're trying, you're just walking along and just trying to experience with them. And I thought that was just really beautiful. I, I really, I found that to be very, one of the very inspiring things that he's written, you know, and, and I think you see that. I think you see that in analysts of all stripes, you know, who are, really really you know really good you know I, I think that's really true and that's something i i aspire to and i still have to uh work a lot on um you know of not wanting to jump in because i'm an academic you know i make my living lecturing to people you know i lecture to 100 people at a time multiple times a week i'm kind of like a stand-up comic that you know, has a 15 week gig, you know, three hours a week, you know, and that's kind of my job, my day job. And if I don't lecture to people about stuff, I start to have a Jones in for it. You know, it's like an addiction, you know, like got to get my fix in, you know, and so I have to be very careful in a, in a clinical setting or a, a you know, a session um, not to want to jump in and start lecturing. You know, that's the problem, you know, as, as my, uh, as my advisor used to tell me and, uh, when I, I was actually supervising somebody, it wasn't me, I was supervising somebody and I went to my advisor one day, you know, and, you know, for a session, I was like, he's driving me crazy. This guy is, I'm supervising, he's just, he's just lecturing to the patients and, you know, all this stuff. And he said, yes, yes, you know, like, yes, he's doing a little sermonette, you know, it's a little sermonette, you know, but yeah, don't do that, you know. So I, I, I still remember that, like, you know, I, and I have to tell myself not to do that, you know, because that, that's a tendency when you're a professor to want to lecture, you know. What do you I teach? love lecturing. I teach. Um, I teach uh, at a state university here in Southern California, and I was. Uh, I was before here. I was at Harvard, Harvard Medical School, which is a whole another. We could have a whole another discussion about that. A very interesting place. And I was lured here to this little state college because it was a chance to actually start a university. So I was one of the founding faculty, and so you don't get that chance much in your life to actually 
start a university from scratch. I mean, the first year we were doing everything from deciding on, you know, what kind of sealant to put on the parking lot to, you know, how people were going to get tenured and what departments to have. And, you know, we did everything. There was 13 faculty and we decided and did everything, you know, because we were the only ones there. It was us and the cops. You know, they had a police department that was there and it was us. And we took over the site of a former mental hospital, which is a whole nother thing that was really interesting because I worked in a sister hospital in Northern California. So I had all this deja vu. It was almost like post-traumatic stress going back to the state hospital, like, oh my God. But I had a chance to found a university. So I came here and I was the founding uh, uh, founder of the psychology department. And so um, I put together the psychology department and I brought in very good colleagues who were much smarter than me to, to help with that sort of thing. And, um, and that was my, um, that was my entree and you know, I mean, I've been doing academic stuff for years and going in and out of academia. And this was sort of my entree into like the full time, you know, full on professor thing. And, um, and we founded this little university and, and it's still going, thank goodness. And uh, the psych department is now the largest, I think, single department in the in the university. It's huge. We're like 90% women. We're training, we are probably sending more, I'm just guessing at this, we're probably sending more Latinas to graduate school in psychology than anywhere else in the country. I would bet on that. We have a 40% graduate placement rate uh, of our students. 40% of them go to graduate school, which is 10% above the national average, 40, 45%. And most of those students, many, many, many of them are Latinas, which are you know, under, underrepresented in clinical psychology, especially. Um, and, you know, the idea that, that they can go then serve, you know, you know, Latino, Latina communities, which is really underserved is, is a really cool thing. So I feel very good about that work. Um, I teach classes because I founded the department. I can teach whatever I want. Um, you know, my training is I have dual training in clinical psychology and also in quantitative psychology. And so for years and years and years, all I taught was quantitative psychology. That's what I did at Harvard. You know, I was just a research guy, was the biostatistician in the back of the room and you know, I just did the stats on for people. And so I came here, I said, you know what, I can hire people now to teach the stats who are much smarter than me, and I can do stuff that I want to do. So the first class I taught was a class on Asian philosophy. And that's also a very popular class. And I still teach that I'm teaching it now. And I teach a class on Nazi Germany with a historian, which has been really, really fascinating. Um, I teach personality theory, I teach clinical psychology, I teach foundations of psychotherapy, their typical stuff. And then I also teach a class on bizarre behavior and culture bound syndromes, which was, um, if you go to my reviews on Rape My Professor, you'll see the comment many times, Vulcan goes off on tangents. And I read that and I said, you know, they're right. And so what I'm going to do is take all the tangents I go off on, collect them all together and make a class out of it. And so that's what I did. And then I also started a blog, uh, Bizarre Behavior, um, Bizarre Behavior dot, it's dot org now, or I can't remember the I should send it to you. I haven't written much on it lately, uh, but I started this blog and, um, and then started to write things that were going to be in the class and kind of back and forth for the class. And then it became a thing on its own. And, um, and I've been doing that class now for, I don't know, God, 10, 15 years. And um, that's been a very interesting class because that has been the area now of the research that I'm writing. I start writing about sort of atypical psychopathology or severe psychopathology and atypical psychopathologies, things that sort of fall through the cracks of the DSM. You know, like I write, um, uh, I'm, I've been writing now about uh, dissociative disorders 
and um, you know dissociative disorders, and of course, you know the thing that falls through the cracks is demonic possession, right? So I'm I'm finishing up a paper now on demonic possession. I uh, just finished a paper on hoarding, which I just sent off to get published, and I'm just amazed in the psychoanalytic world how long it takes to get something published in a psychoanalytic journal. It is unbelievable. This, friends, is a place that is ripe for disruptive technology because, you know, there are all these, and they call them predatory journals, but, you know, some are actually really quite good, where you send your thing in, you pay a small fee, and you can get your journal article published in a month. You can get it reviewed and published in a month. Blind peer review done, it's published online in a month, you know, nicely formatted. Anybody can get it from anywhere. And, you know, that's happening all over the place. And at the same time, these analytic journals, one I submitted a paper to, they were telling me it was going to be eight to nine months before they even really reviewed it. You know, I sent off a, a paper to the journal, you know, International Journal of Psychoanalysis a couple of years ago. It was seven months before I got back the rejection letter. You know, I mean, this is just crazy. This is ripe for disruptive technology to come in and say, hey, we're going to do this right. We're going to have a journal that's going to review things quickly, get stuff out really quick, put it online so everybody can see it. This is a way, by, by the way, I believe we could really, really support psychoanalysis and, and, and um, you know, make psychoanalysis more visible. You know, the cognitive behavioral people are not waiting that long to get their articles published. You know, they are getting them like this. And we're, you know, a year before your article gets published. This is, sorry, I'll get my soapbox for a minute. This is crazy. So I'm encouraging somebody out there, start a depth psychology journal, do it like how Vanessa is doing it. Don't make it tribal, make it depth psychology open to anybody in any sort of form of analysis that people are doing. Or, or, you know, analytic work, you know, that people are doing and, and, and put it online, make an online journal. If I, if I could do these sort of task of psyche things, these detailed things, I would personally do it, but it's really not my talent to do that kind of thing, but I would support whoever did it because it's just crazy. Because anyway, so that's a little aside, um, but I'm, yeah, I, but I I'm like, a, how do we make this happen? Yeah, well, we should talk <laughs> more about it. And maybe, maybe people listening to your podcast would be interested in. This could be an Embahagen project, make a, yeah, make a journal I, I, online. I, I, I would do anything that I can be of help to it, count on me. And I, maybe we can get more people and have a discussion about it sometime. I think it'd be awesome because there is a need. We want to publish our stuff. We want to get it out there. We have a great viewpoint in the analytic community of stuff to say and, 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 you know, we're just not getting it out quickly enough. We have these old crusty journals that are taking forever. Um, and I'm not going to mention the one I submitted to by name because I don't want them to reject my thing. If somebody listens to this, but you know, it, it's just crazy out there. I mean, you know, and I can send off papers. I, I send off, I send off papers to these, some of these online journals and I can get things published in a month, you know, and they do a very good job. And then everybody can see it. I, I got an article published recently on uh, delusional misidentification disorders, which is another thing that I talk about in my class, you know, uh, uh, um, Capgras syndrome, Fregoli delusion, uh, Cotard syndrome, these sort of things, and body dysmorphic disorder and apodominophilia, you know, where you feel like you really have an urge to cut off an arm or leg and then you go and figure out a way to do it. So I wrote a paper on that and um, I sent it off to this journal in, in uh, Asia and it's uh, already already going to be published. I think it just came out like yesterday, you know, and it's URL and it's online and it's up. People, anybody in the world can read it. And they encouraged me to po post it on ResearchGate and Academia. 
to put it on my own, you know, things that I have out there and get it out there. I mean, that's the kind of attitude that um, that I'd love to see in the analytic community, you know, with, with journals and stuff. So yeah, yeah we, should, we should talk about that at some point. I'd love to do it. I think we should do it. You know. Yeah, and I just thought of there's a journal called the European Journal of Psychoanalysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually submitted a paper to them on bunker mentality and um, and uh, Hitler and Trump. So I just sent it off three, four weeks ago, and they look like they look to me like a journal that could do this sort of thing. Yeah, I have not heard word one from them. This has been three or four weeks now. I haven't heard anything from them, even if they got you know, the paper, I don't know if they even got it. So I got to contact them and you know, I'm not putting them down again. Don't, you know, hate me because I'm saying this in a public forum, but you know, again, you know, I haven't heard anything from them. And um, you know, what my rule now is that I'm doing for myself is I'm giving the journals a month to get back to me. If they don't get back to me in four weeks, four or five weeks, they don't get back to me. At least let me know they got the paper and they're reviewing it. What I'm doing is sending them a nice note saying, Thanks, but I'm I'm rescinding my 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 submission and sending it somewhere else. I just can't, you know, especially as academics, you know, we live and die by getting stuff published. I mean, I'm tenured, but if I wasn't tenured, there's no way I could I could have a psychoanalytic research agenda, you know, because it just takes too long. I wouldn't get tenured, you know, it would take too long. And you know, if I I would start studying CBT because I can get them published right away. You know, I do, you know, quantitative studies in CBT. I'd measure things in short-term outcomes. You know, there's Notice there's not any, not a lot of studies in CBT where they're measuring things after five years out, you know, at the end of the CBT because it's an academic driven discipline. People aren't getting tenured doing that, right? So we need ways to publish quickly. We can get more academics interested in psychoanalysis and then we can start, you know, doing more studies and it can start steamrolling, you know. Right now, I mean, we don't have a lot of academics in psychoanalysis. A lot of them are hidden. You know, they're like me. You know, I probably got hired in my job because because I do quantitative stuff, right? Right. <laughs> you just slid the psychoanalysis in so there. I can slide in, you know, but but that's not a good way to go. You know, that that's a sucky way, a roundabout way to go. I mean, I mean, I have two two doctorates, which is stupid. You know, I mean, you know, the more doctorates you have, really, the more stupid you are. You know, why would you do that? Why not just have one and have a proper career? You know, I mean you should be able to go and do it. But if people could get published in psychoanalysis more quickly, then, you know, that would, that would really help us to promote it. And I think that's needed. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's more abundant in, in American academic circles, in less in, in psychology departments. And if you go to the English department, you know, and some of the humanities, you can find analytic people there. Um, you know, analytic stuff outside the context of clinical work, you know, we could have a, talk, debate about, you know, is that a good, bad thing? Is it something different? Apples and oranges? I don't know, you know, but I, at least they're there. They're, at least they're thinking this way. You know, I can go to the English department and talk to people and they know what I'm talking about. You know, that's great. Um, but why can't I go talk to my psychology colleagues? You know, I mean, now at my university, I am the only, I am the only um, analytically oriented person in the whole department. I mean, I think I'm the only one who teaches Freud. I'm certainly the only one who teaches Jung. Um, you know, and then, you know, neo-analytic people, I'm probably, you know, other than a paragraph or two in a personality theory textbook, I'm the only one who goes into depth. I have another colleague who's a, whose training is in, um, she does research in terror management, which is you know, related to existentialism. So she is much more open to Freud and, and stuff. And so she's, she's more Freud friendly, but certainly that's not her area of research. So I'm the only one, right? Um, the other guy we had who was analytic, um, 
a real hardcore Freudian. Uh, he retired. So I'm the only one. And if you went around to departments, you know, in my area, um, you would find that. Uh, I also uh, teach at Cal Lutheran, which is a little uh, university here. They have a doctoral program. They have a PsyD program in clinical psychology. And I teach in that program. I was teaching in it actively. Now I just do dissertation stuff. Um, but they had a whole uh, analytic track. And uh, Morris Eagle was involved. I don't know if you know Morris. He's a He's been around for a long time. He's a great guy. He was in that track and, um, and uh, he retired and they've now all gone almost completely CBT. You know, there's no analytic people there anymore. I taught, I taught the, the class on psychoanalytic psychotherapy there to the doctoral students. And it was like going into a hostile war zone because they were forced to take it and they're all CBT people. And they just spent the whole time either just resisting learning about the stuff or just arguing to me. But then they would come in with case histories and say, you know, I don't know why I'm having so much trouble with this patient. You know, she loved me so much. The first couple sessions told me how much I was hating her. And, and now she's just really pissed off at me for no reason. And I, I don't understand what's going on. I'm just like, okay, transference. Well, we're now going to have a, we're going to have a lecture on transference. And by the way, didn't I mention that transference also becomes negative, you know, and let's talk about negative, you know, but they don't get any training in that, you know, which is amazing. And then what they're doing now is they're developing terms for a lot of analytic things. They have a term for the unconscious. I can't remember what it is, something like, you know, non, non outside of awareness or something well, outside yeah. of awareness schemas or something that, you know, so they're, they're, they're introducing stuff in, they're pulling stuff in from psychoanalysis, but they're not, um, you know, they're not acknowledging where it's coming from. You know, I don't want to go off on CBT. I don't have any problem with CBT. It's fine. You know, it, it's good for what it is. Uh, but this idea that we're just not getting any analytic stuff in these doctoral programs is to me is a little bit annoying. Um, many years ago, I put together actually when I was a clinician in the hospital, I put together a list of psychoanalytic friendly universities. And um, I had that posted on the very early online stuff for a long time. And then um, I gave that list over to uh, David Downing, who's, um, I don't know if you probably know David, he's a, I haven't talked to him in like 20 years, but he is, um, he's the guy, he's a big guy. He's very involved in division 39 of the APA. And um, he took it over and I just joined the division 39 just because what the hell do I have to do during the pandemic? And cause I was looking at journals to try to publish and I was looking interested in their journals. So I started reading their things. I saw he was there and he's a good guy and uh, an analyst. I guess he's down in LA now. And, um, he kept the list going. So the list is still up there. And I was very happy to see that the list of psychoanalytic programs, friendly university programs is there. And I was sad to see that it's somewhat seems a little bit diminished. And I think they're more out there than, than, than the list shows. You know, I think there's guys like me out there who are the lone guy or one or two people in the program who are doing stuff. And so um, I would like to see him you know, I thought maybe if I had time to volunteer, you know, doing some more research on it, but it's, it's still out there. So if you go to division 39, you can find the list of psychoanalytic programs uh, in psychoanalytic friendly university programs. It isn't a long list. And I think, you know, we could, we could change that, you know, by, uh, by publishing. This is my rant and rave. So this is what I'm doing now. I'm spending the pandemic trying to write. And so this is my ranting and raving about, you know, not you know, maybe I'm just impatient. <laughs> I don't want to wait six months to publish something. I want to get it out and move on to the next thing. So, you know, yeah. No, but like I said, I'm all for getting psychoanalysis out into the world more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your last podcast with Joel, I thought was great. And I thought he, he was making very, very good cogent points about, you know, the need to do this. And 
you know, it's a great form of, 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 of therapy. It's also a form of um, a way that we can understand, uh, you know, larger groups. We can understand culture. We can understand, you know, cultural phenomenon. And, you know, I'm very interested in that. Uh, you know, that's a lot of my writing now is to look at, you know, not so much, um, you know, like case studies and looking at, you know, you know, sort of analytic techniques as much as just trying to use those, that understanding to look out into the real world, to get out of the consulting room and turn our lens out to the real world and look at what's going out there. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, with, you know, Robbie, I'm interested in trying to do that with, with, uh, with music. And that may be something I'm going to be thinking about soon. And, you know, what, 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 what enhances our creativity? You know, how do you become a good musician? What's going on unconsciously? What, what inspires people to become musicians? What inspires people to want to play guitar or sing or dance in front of hundreds and thousands of people, you know? And one of the things I've written a lot about and that I'm very interested in, and again, this is also somewhat derivative of my dad's work, but is narcissism, right? You know, in the way that narcissism is conceptualized in psychoanalysis. And I've been thinking a lot about that and lecturing a lot about it. And, um, you know, I think we've got the severe narcissism down really well, you know, the, the Kern Bergian, you know, my dad's stuff, um, you know, we understand from an object relations perspective, you know, narcissism pretty well. What I, what I'm more interested in now is, you know, what about what I call compensatory narcissism, narcissism that maybe develops at a later developmental stage, you know, um, you know, you have, if you look at rock musicians, you'll find that, you know, right Oedipal period, maybe a little bit after sort of between Oedipal and latency, you know, in that period of time, there is some sort of narcissistic wounding that happens. There's some sort of trauma, you know, uh, common one is parents getting divorced. Uh, one I like to talk about in my class, I talk about uh, the musician, you know, Brett Michaels, right? You guys know him. He's from, from Poison. And then he had, you know, the Brett Michaels. He had that great TV show, The Rock of Love, right? right. Which, uh, by the way, I'm a big proponent of reality TV as a laboratory for uh, psychoanalysis because we cannot ethically do experiments where we stick a bunch of people in a house together and feed them alcohol, you know, and watch what, See they, what do. they do. But, but <laughs> if you're a TV producer, you can do a reality TV producers can do that. And they do do that. And so they have these brilliant shows and you watch them and go, Oh my God, there we you can just see, you know, whatever analytic, you know, concept you want to see in vivo, there it is. And rock of love is a great show for that. And Brett Michaels was the main, guy in that show and what you get from that um get a little bit of his background he was a kid who had um he came down with type 1 diabetes right right in this time period right and this in my 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 uh my speculation because i've not seen him personally uh, my speculation is this inspires a sort of compensatory narcissism where he is compensating for that narcissistic wound by, you know, wanting to get out in front and be the pretty boy and the guitar player and do all those kind of things. And I think if you look at a lot of rock musicians, you'll find a similar dynamic. And so he becomes narcissistic, right, in a way, but he's narcissistic in a way where he also has an awareness of his narcissism. In other words, his core self-identity is well put together, right? It's pretty well put together, but there's a little aspect of it where there's this narcissistic wounding unlike somebody who's a severe narcissist where they're narcissistic, you know, they're, what does my dad call it? The grandiose narcissistic self is, 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 you know, basically centered around this feeling of being special, you know, in a sort of, uh, uh, you know, a 
object constellation of somebody who has, you know, been raised, you know, like you would if you were borderline personality disorder, you have this early childhood disruption in your object relations, your object integrity doesn't happen, you've got these things, and but you were able to build this sort of core grandiose self, you know, and, and, and center your self identity gets centered around that and so got constantly got to be pumped up full of admiration to keep it going or that you feel like you're going to die and you've got somebody like Trump or you pick your narcissistic leader, they're out there, severe narcissistic leaders. Um, the rock musician is different than that. He's somebody who has more self-awareness. They have a, they have their personality, their self is relatively well put together, yeah, but there's this aspect of them where there's a narcissistic wounding that they're compensating for. And so I'm very interested in that. And that's something I want to, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about trying to do some research on if I can get, get, um, get access to some of these guys and actually be able to talk to them and interview them. Um, this is one of the things I, I try to do. And of course, that's very difficult. So I could do it from secondary sources, less convincing. But I think there's something uh, about that. And I think there's something about musicians where you see that and that the playing an instrument is a way of, um, of uh, perhaps putting a solve over these sort of compensatory narcissistic wounds. Um, it doesn't necessarily do the same thing. I think if you're a severe narcissist, you narcissistic personality per person, I don't think you find the same sort of thing. And again, you know, this is all speculative. I just, this is just ideas off the top of my head, but it's something I'm interested in studying because, you know, I'm a musician. I feel I probably have some of that sort of compensatory narcissism. Um, and, you know, probably that's one of the driving unconscious forces for me to, to, you know, to become a guitar player, to play guitar. Um, the idea also of guitars uh, or instruments as, as uh, linking objects, you know, you know, compensating for some form of grief or even transitional objects. Um, I think there's a concept there too. Uh, in my hoarding paper, I write about uh, things that are being hoarded as, as, as transitional objects. And people, hoarders, when they collect these objects, they go into sort of a transitional space. You know, and I think that that transitional space is very interesting because mu music and being a musician, uh, when you're playing with other people and you're, and you, you have this sense of sort of oneness with your instrument, I think there's a, there's a sort of entry into some sort of transitional space there. Um, and, and I also think if I put my Jungian hat on for a second, there's also something that connects you to something that's greater than just, you know, stuff that you've repressed from your own unconscious. I think there is something that is very um, universal or, um, I don't, I don't use really the term collective unconscious, but there's something out there in the collective that maybe human beings, maybe our brains wired the same way or whatever, that music does something to is it, it activates a different part of the brain or a different part of, a, you know, the, what we're tuning into spiritually. That is not just a, not just something that comes from my own personal unconscious repressed stuff. And there those things meet, right? The Freudian transitional space and the Jungian sort of collective, you know, encounter with the archetype. There's a similarity there. And I think in music, especially those things overlap. And so I'm very interested in that. And again, you know, this is just something I started to think about and, you know, maybe that that's the next thing I write about. I don't know. You know. Yeah. I love it. Um, yeah. You could always read their memoirs. There's a lot of like rock musician memoirs. Yeah. I'm reading Keith Richards right now. And that that's guy what is I was thinking amazing. Of. That guy is amazing. I mean, he's, He's, but again, if you read his early life, you get this similar picture, you know, this compensatory sort of narcissist stuff. You know, he, he's, he's a really interesting character. And a lot of these guys are really fascinating. 
Um, you know, there a lot of these rock musicians, these are guys you would want on your couch. They would make such great analytic, uh, um, you know, um, uh, patients, you know, because they, they, they are very articulate and they are, many of them are, you know, the, the basis, basic parts of the personality are pretty well put together. And we talk about ego psychology, right? If you're an ego analyst, you know, ego psychologist, you're going to go, oh, these guys are pretty good. They have good defenses. You know, they're maybe some of them aren't the most healthy things, you know, um, but, you know, they, they have good defenses and, um, you know, the fact that Keith Richards isn't, isn't a, isn't a drug addict living on the street and you know, points to that guy's personality being put together maybe better than, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, drug addicts. You know, and I say that as somebody, you know, I wrote a book on, 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 on psychoanalysis and drug addiction. Well, let's talk about that. Um, which is, uh, which is, by the way, I'll give myself a shameless plug. It is online at freepsychotherapybooks.org, which is a great website. It's run out of IPI, which is, um, I can't remember what the initials stand for, but they're an analytic group in Washington, D.C. I think the Sharps run it, and um, they have a website. And if you have written an analytic book like I did back in the 90s, and the, the copyright reverts back to you, <clears throat> and, you know, um, you want to get it out there, you can write to them and, um, and offer it to them to put up online, and they will host it. And they did that with my book. And my dad's got a couple books up there, I think. And there's a bunch of very good writers have books up there. And you can have a whole library of free psychoanalytic books, free analytic books available to anybody. And, um, and my book's up there. And, um, you know, and you know, people are more than welcome to go and read it. And, you know, it's really an object relations uh, oriented view of, of drug addiction. Um, but it touches on a lot of these things we've been talking about a little bit. If I were rewriting it, I think I would go a little more into this transitional space stuff and how drugs can maybe put you into that. I would add a little more Winnicott, Winnicottian spin on it, I think. Um, I will mention my dad is writing a book on not, not chemical uh, compulsion, not uh, drug compulsion, but non-chemical compulsive behavior. And so he's gonna come out with some of that stuff pretty soon. I think he'll have some stuff on that. It should be pretty interesting. Um, so anyway. I didn't know about this library of uh, free psychoanalytic yeah. books. Yeah. What a resource. Free, freepsychotherapybooks.org or .com. I'll uh, find IPI. it. Yeah, just, just search Google it and it'll come up. And yeah, no, it's great. It's a, they have a lot of really good stuff in there. And they even break the books down by chapter. So you can go to my book and you can download the whole thing or you can just download a chapter. And so it's up there and wow. it's very cool. And yeah, you just got to get the, you know, and, and if anybody listening has written a book, and, you know, the copyrights reverted back to, you You know, you're not selling very many copies anymore. If you look at my book on Amazon, it's going for $800 or something ridiculous. <laughs> you know, the one new copy that's out there and then, you know, and then the used copies are going for 200 bucks. That's ridiculous, you know, and I don't get no money from that. So, right. um, you know, I just soon have it, you know, the idea is not to make, you don't make money off writing analytic books. No. But, you know, the idea is to get the get it out there, right? So get it out there. So it's out there, and it's a great website, and they're nice people there, and um, and you know they do training programs. If you're in the DC area, they do a lot of training programs, and they're very object relations oriented, and um, so yeah, I recommend them really highly. And so yeah, so I, that's a, it's a book on drug addiction, and I talk about Jimi Hendrix and um, and uh, Elvis, who had some of these kind of dynamics I'm describing, probably a little more. Uh, a little more primitive, a little bit earlier uh, disruption, you know, they're, um, you know, uh, not that they would be diagnosed with a personality disorder, but they're having, they had more object trauma very early on, you know, Hendrix loss of parent, um, 
Uh, and then, you know, I mean, literal loss later on, but early on, you know, the mother's not around and there's Tom going in there and, um, and Elvis, um, Elvis is very interesting. Elvis um, was the, uh, was the, uh, was a twin, right? He was the live one and there was a dead twin. Oh, and, wow. then, um, and then Elvis, uh, you know, mother, very interesting thing with the mother, identification with the mother and the father goes to jail when he's very early, gets sent off to prison. Um, and so there's very interesting things about Elvis, um, which would actually also be a worthy of a book in and of itself, just to write a book on Elvis. Um, if, if I had the copious spare time and resources to do that, that I think that'd be very interesting because um, he was a really interesting character, you know, very, quite fascinating, but, you know, some very early object stuff. And of course, um, you know, had, had drug problems, you know, Elvis had real, real addiction problems. Hendrix did not have addiction problems. That's a, that's an, un, that's something that people assume that he was addicted to drugs. He did not have addiction problems. He was not addicted to anything. He, in fact, he had a girlfriend who was uh, addicted to heroin and he was, he was very, very upset about it, and it really upset him. Uh, and he wrote some songs about her addiction to heroin. And uh, you know, he was very anti-heroin uh, and anti-being addicted to heroin. Uh, but he was a polydrug user. He liked to use lots of different kinds of drugs. He wasn't addicted to him. And of course, you all know the story that he, uh, he died because he took um, sleeping pills, prescription sleeping pills that he thought were the same strength as the ones he got in America. But he was in Europe, and they were you know, much stronger. And that's unfortunately what killed him. Um, but he's a very interesting case too, you know. And so again, you know, all these sort of musicians out there, you could have a whole spectrum, you know, of pathology picking from them. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a huge Jimi Hendrix fan. When I was a kid, uh, he was he was really the inspiration for my becoming a guitar player. And I think there was probably a time when I was a teenager where I listened to nothing but Hendrix because I thought listening to something else would would pollute my 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 musical mind and my musical ability i would i would denigrate my my becoming good at playing guitar because i was i was listening to something that wasn't hendrix you know and so that, you know so i was very very much influenced by by hendrix's playing he's a brilliant player his identification with the guitar where the guitar really becomes an extension of himself was you know almost unparalleled you know i mean they're great technicians who can play the instrument but it's an instrument that's you know somewhat separate from them. Hendrix, I think the identity was complete. You know, he just, it was just part of himself, you know. So very interesting. Yeah. Amazing. What's yeah. your band like? What's your band called? Um, I play in two bands. One is called Sister Ook, S-I-S-T-E-R-O-O-K, which is a woman who is a singer from Ventura, which is a town up the road from me. And she's been a musician for years and years and years, been out there. And I joined her band, what, four or five years ago as a lead guitarist. And um, we play a lot in Southern California. Um, we play a lot in Hollywood. We played down at the House of Blues in Anaheim because the House of Blues in Hollywood closed down. So we played the House of Blues in Anaheim. We really like that place. And uh, we play up here. We played every dive bar in Ventura County multiple times. Um, and uh, we play hard rock, not heavy metal. It's, uh, you know, so I make a distinction because they're really different musical genres. And um, yeah, and we're online. There's a sisterook.com. You can go online or you can go uh, to YouTube and you can, you can, uh, you can uh, Google it. And I'm up there playing and doing my thing. And uh, I think we've got a couple shows up there, uh, full shows up, some better than others, you know. Um, and then, and it's all her stuff. Uh, it's all Ook's stuff. We call her Ook. That's her nickname. It's all her stuff, her songs. She's the composer. 
and um, I just sort of add my uh, my bit to it, right? So, but she's great. She's a wonderful person. Her husband is the bass player, and then uh, a guy I, I've been playing with for a long time, a drummer, uh, AJ, and it's just us four. And so we play around. And then I have another band with AJ called Haunted Robots, and uh, we've been doing uh, mostly stuff that I've written and then some cover stuff. And we are just getting, we, we, we were in a band before and uh, we lost our bass player. And so we're, we, we just got another bass player. And then um, uh, because of the pandemic, he, he's dropped out. And so we are now searching for, for another bass player. So any of your listeners play bass and they're in the Northern Los Angeles area, I'd love to hear from you because we're looking for somebody. But we, we tend to be a little more, um, a little more improvisational, a little more, um, um, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, jam band, jazz aesthetic. There's a little more of that sort of improvisational thing, which I really, as a musician, that's really fulfilling to do. Again, you go into that space and you just sort of get lost in the music and then you come in and out of it. And, you know, for a musician, I, I, as a musician, I live for that. Right. So maybe when the pandemic gets a little bit better, you'll hear more from Haunted Robots. We'll see, you know, not doing it to get famous anymore. So, you know, just doing it for fun. You know, I think I've worked through my compensatory narcissistic needs pretty much. And you know, hopefully knock on wood. <laughs> What's it like to have your creative life and then your like professor psychology hats? It's, it's a little weird at times. Um, you know, I'll be playing in a club and, you know, one of my students will show up and go, Oh, Dr. Vulcan, you know, I, you know, you play guitar. I'm like, yeah, just call me Kevin. You know, like I, this is a different, different world for me. And they, uh, they, they don't often overlap. As I mentioned, you know, I think to you that, you know, when I finished my training in body imagination, you know, Robbie and Jill and a bunch of my uh, colleagues came to the, to our show in, in, in Hollywood. And that was sort of my final exam. And I'd done a whole bunch of dream work around, um, playing a particular guitar that I have that it was felt, felt like it was fighting me and so we did a whole bunch of this intensive dream work and I got up in front of the stage and again it was one of those things where the guitar just sort of became part of me you know it was just like you know, I played for me I played brilliantly you know and um, you know I felt really good about that and that was due to the dream work you know so that's actually where I'm I'm integrating them now I mean Integrating it into the Freudian world is, is, is harder because, again, this thing that we were talking about before, you know, the tribal, tribalistas, you know, that, that we have to be in the tribe and there's certain constraints about what's considered to be, you know, good behavior and bad behavior. You know, if you went to a hardcore old school psychiatric ego psychologist, you know, with white middle class values, you know, being a rock guitar player is probably not going to be one of the therapeutic, um, you know, goals you know, at the end of, of your analysis. So, you know, it, it, it just, it just depends. You know I mean? I guess I'm, I guess for me, it's still a work in progress, you know, as I get to more closer to retirement age, you know, I'm, I'm contemplating now, um, you know, moving from being an academic, retiring as a professor, and then going into sort of what I call private life. And it's private life, probably, you know, basically just doing dream work practice and, and being a musician, you know, that's probably in a writer, you know, cause I like to write and I'm probably going to do those things and get away from the academic side eventually, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to it. You know, I'm not there yet, but it's, it's, I can see light at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, I may, I may be retiring and I'm also involved, I'm involved in a, a million different things. I'm also involved with a, with a group with um, some unions 
um, one of whom's daughter is a um, is getting her PhD in, at Cambridge in England in business, and we are starting a consulting group, the Hermita Group, named after Hermes, um, the god of the crossroads, right? And we are going to be doing consulting and probably doing some sort of um, travel type things. Uh, we have a we have a part of that group is is going to be called Travel Within, and we're going to be going to really interesting places and then doing dream work and um, probably embodied imagination dream work, but it may end up being some union stuff. There may be some Freudian stuff. We haven't really, you know, also involved with it. Um, and, and that's an ongoing project that we've been working on. And um, again, sidelined by the pandemic, we were supposed to go to Indonesia this, this spring and to Bali and that got sidelined. And so we are, we are um, doing more planning about that now. And I, I think hopefully by the time we have a vaccine, we should, uh, be putting together some some trips and, and go off and do these kind of cool things and so again because unions love to travel and they love to go off to these cool places and do these really cool things and so I'm I'm, I'm having fun hanging out with the unions and uh, yeah my man. friend I have a friend that's a union analyst and she is also an astrologer and she lives in like San Francisco New York she has a place yeah. in India she's in Morocco yeah. she's like always somewhere I can't keep track of her isn't that nuts I don't know <laughs> what a life they live it's awesome you know I, I I'm so I'm so into that I think it's just very cool with I mean I don't live that way because I live like a you know a proper householder I've got a wife who's an attorney and works a lot and I've got a son who's just turned 18 and is trying to go off to college but, you know, I've been taking care of him and, you know, now he's trying to get out of the house and individuate and um, that's a whole big mess, you know, but um, at least he got into college. So that's great. And he's doing college from home. Uh, but, you know, this, I think after he's actually able to go off then maybe, you know, my ability to travel will, will, you know, once the pandemic's over, I, I look forward to that, you know, and it's cool to see people having these kind of lifestyles that I just think, oh, that's really neat. You know, how do they figure that out? You know, so it's neat. It's neat to see other people do things. You know, because again, in the Freudian world, we tend to be a little more, um, a little more solid and stayed and we stay in one place and, you know, we have our practice and, you know, that's how we do it. And, and you were on the, you were on the, you were on the cutting edge, Vanessa. You know, you are the inspiration, I think, at least for me a little bit. And, you know, the way that you practice and the, what you're doing, I think is really awesome. And I, I you know. It's I a new fun. world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you were doing this before the pandemic, which is very cool, you know, and. You know, so, you know, I will, I will take some inspiration from you and, um, and, uh, you know, probably doing my dream work practice, a lot of that's going to be, you know, now it'll all be on Zoom or be online. Um, but I think even afterward, I think it's a cool way to do things. So. Yeah, and it does work. Like my husband had to travel a lot because he's, he makes films and things like that. So he'd have to like yeah. travel to openings yeah. and music. Yeah. He makes music and stuff. So he has to travel or he used to have to travel a lot. So I could yeah. see people from wherever we were, you know, yeah. so that was also helpful. I felt like before I left the States, I had to take weeks off all the time and people just didn't have treatment when I was away. But then after right. I started doing everything online, then people's treatment actually became more consistent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm actually better in that way, I think. Yeah. I mean, of course, as we know, consistency is really, really important. I, and I agree with you, more important than being in person. You know, I mean, the fact that you're just with, you know, your therapist, your analyst in some way, shape or form, I think that's awesome. Yeah, so yeah, you're doing, the, you're doing a cool thing, you know. And, and again, you know, my, my neo-Jungian 
teachers, you know, Robbie and Jill are, 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 are also doing that. And, you know, I think it's really great. And so more of it, more of it, and everybody's experimenting on what works and what doesn't. And, you know, the milieu and, you know, do I have my real office behind me or do I have a fake office? And, you know, how do we, how do we do this? And, you know, of course I'm teaching all my classes uh, on zoom now. And so, you know, I have, you know, 40, 50 people on zoom at the same time. And that's a whole nother thing, you know, to see how that works. And, I know people who are doing group therapy on, you know, using Zoom, and that's interesting way, dynamic going on. And so, yeah, it's a brave new world. We're all trying these new things, and you know, I think we're all going to figure out what what works, you know, the best for us. And um, I don't think it's going to go away. I think even after the pandemic is over, I think people are going to realize so many things that we thought that we had to do in person, we realize are not necessary. We can do them as good or better. You know, if you're reading any of the literature out there now or the, the magazine articles or whatever, oh, education is dying, college education's crappy now because everybody's doing the classes online. That's not necessarily true. I don't think it's necessarily worse. It's just different. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just different. And I think that we're going to be seeing, you know, I think even after the pandemic is over, I'm going to still do a lot of my work online, my teaching work online. I, I, I don't see going back and doing a lot of in person, send me a little bit, you know, I'll have office hours probably in person, but I don't think I'm going to go back um, and just teach wholesale um, in person classes anymore. You know, I think that ship has sailed. I, I found a way to do it very efficiently. And I think it, the students seem to like it and they're doing really well. And, and again, like your therapy sessions, my students can be anywhere and, and they can access, you know, my courses and they can, you know, I have material online, they can get any time, they can watch my lectures that kind of stuff. And, you know, I've just spent the last two years basically putting most of my lectures online. You know, so if you go to YouTube, you can Google and you can find all my lectures online. And, oh, and I'll link to it. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, maybe I sent you the playlist link, you know, it's in that thing I sent you. But, you know, like, you know, if you want to see all my lectures in the Nazi Germany class, well, they're all up there. And, you know, and, and hey, and they're not perfect, by the way, everybody. <laughs> there's plenty of things in there that are not, that are not perfect. And, you know, I have to go back every once in a while and revise things and, and, oh, I made a mistake. I said something that was wrong. And, you know, but that's part of the fun of lecturing is that you, that's life. you learn, you know, you learn, by doing <laughs> it, right? you know, um, but, uh, but I figured it's just better to put everything out there and make it available to students and they can go and read it. And, you know, I get people from other places who, you know, see something I did on YouTube and they'll say, oh, that was really cool. And, you know, so I, I really enjoy that. It's fun, you know, again, it's like, it's like just taking it and just making it available to the world, just opening yourself up to the world, getting out of the consulting hour or out of the classroom and opening yourself up to the world. So I think this is a good, good time to be doing that a little bit, you know, because we're so contracted. Everybody's so contracted because of the virus, you know, that anything we can do to sort of open up and sort of, you know, make ourselves available, you know, and, and, and make connections between people, I think is really valuable right now. Absolutely. And I think that um, everyone that I talked to has said that they're going to keep some aspect of their practice online, whether it's yeah. teaching or seeing patients. I mean, yeah. literally everyone, everyone sees yeah. advantage of it. And also, I think it goes along with the kind of overall theme of what's happening is that we're like, 
we've had these structures in place, including the psychoanalytic institutes that have all these rules and they've kind of told us all like, this is how it works and this is what we're gonna do. And it's been all very like top down and like authoritarian and um, everybody's had to fit into these boxes to like get the approval of these authorities. And I feel like this way of working with the, especially with the internet making this available to us gives everyone more like personal agency of, of figuring out what's the best way to work for them with their lives or the way they want their lives to be. And then, you know, like I'll work the, the best way for me. And then people that that works for too, they can work with me. And if they want to work in some more rigid way in an institute, they can go do that too. That's not going to go away either, you know, yeah, but it just yeah, gives yeah. more options for people to have more agency in making decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. And, you know, I think it's, wonderful that you're spearheading, you know, a movement in the analytic world to do this. And, you know, again, we need more of it. And I'm, again, somebody who's not in a tribe, you know, I, I, I think it's really wonderful, but I don't, I don't think the institutes have to go away either. I think they can, that, that always can be an option for people. And if that's, if somebody is drawn to that, if that's what they have an appetite for, you know, the rules and the hoops to jump through and everything, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, um, it's helpful for some people, but not for everyone. Yeah, but it, it's, just it's, but it, it should just be one of the options among many. And again, you know, I think we're seeing, I, and I do think we're seeing some of the institutes, you know, at least in the, in the analytic therapy training programs, not the analyst programs, but the analytic therapy training programs, I think they're starting to be a little bit more flexible. You know, that's, that's what I'm hearing from people involved in those things. And I think that's a good thing, you know, and we need more flexibility. You know, I think rigidity is, is, uh, is, is a bad thing, you know, uh, we'll all be rigid when we die, you know, so let's stay flexible. I was going to say, rigidity is bad. <laughs> yeah. So let's all, 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 all stay flexible and, and, you know, make it a living, a living organismal sort of thing, you know, that we're doing here, you know, that we all can be involved in and, 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 and that kind of thing. So I think it's really good. You know? Yeah. And like you said earlier, um, psychoanalysis is thriving more in the humanities and film and literature yeah, and it's yeah. not in the psychology courses and it's not in psychiatry anymore at all so yeah, to open yeah. up like the ability for different people to train and even lay analysis you know it just opens up the scope of what what psychoanalysis yeah. can be and brings more psychoanalysis to the world yeah i'm and i'm of two minds about that you know part of me thinks that you know, if you take the analytic stuff and you completely divorce it from, you know, the consulting hour, from, from understanding psychopathology, understanding, you know, positive psychology, you know, uh, that interaction with the person, you know, in the analytic hour or the therapy hour, or whatever it is, I wonder that it loses something. Um, and likewise, if you're just in the therapy hour and you're just in the psychopathology thinking and you are isolated from the world that's also sort of bad and you know i i i'd like to see sort of the the, the melding of those two things i do think it in using analysis of whatever kind to be working with people who aren't coming in with overt pathology you know i think that's of course you know if you're freudian everybody's neurotic but you know like you know what i'm saying you know that i i could go see an analyst because i want to enhance my creativity because I think that, you know, and again, the unions are really good at this, you know, that you go see a union because it's almost a spiritual motive, you know, because I want to, I want to uh, uh, have better awareness of myself, you know, and of the world and of, 
these things that, that contribute to me, these transpersonal things. But I think the Freudians can do that too. And I think, you know, different types of analysis can also enhance that sort of creativity that you don't have to be having some sort of crisis or trauma in order to, to go into analysis. All you really need is curiosity, right? So whatever foments curiosity, I think is a really, really good thing. And, and again, so, so I'm, I'm really happy that we have colleagues in the humanities that are, that are doing this and they're applying this stuff to what they're doing. But I also think they may get some benefit by grounding it in, you know, in, in the sort of place where, in, in, in the origins where this stuff came from, right? And I think that's important too, you know, and, and, and many are doing that. Many are doing their, their in analysis themselves, they're in therapy themselves. Many are doing that. And many are also, also getting training in, you know, being the therapist, being the analyst. Um, but I think some of it, you know, I, I see some of it, to me, it seems like it's drifting off a little bit. And, um, you know, because it's one of these things where, you know, it becomes like a philosophy that becomes tautological. You can make anything into anything. And I think we got to be a little careful for that. We got to, we got to keep a critical, like a third mindset over here of a little critical viewpoint that is that we constantly ask ourselves, you know, we're not, we're not just fabricating things. You know, we do this in the dream work that I do, the embodied imagination. You know, you, you, one thing you watch is the client, the patient, you know, if they start fabricating things, it's no longer the image from the dream. It's now they're just making stuff up, you know, like from their, from their, cognitive ego their ego is just making things up you've got to yeah, let's, let's becomes too like intellectualized intellectualizing their their intellect they're 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 making their intellectualizations into images right and so we want to watch for that because i think that it becomes very easy to start uh spinning fantasies right and so we can do that in this work because um because of its sort of philosophical nature you know it's not like one well, going out and measuring something and doing a statistical test to test a hypothesis we don't do a lot of that we are really looking at case histories and we're sort of looking for pattern recognition and so rather than recognizing a pattern you know from the ground of what we're looking at it's very easy for us to use our egos to impose a pattern that comes from something that some bias or something that we have and again you know your training is to reduce reduce that right your training, you know, as an analyst to be, you know, neutral, to be a neutral projective screen so you can, you can perceive those patterns. But I think when we start getting off into, especially when the cultural stuff, we can start, it becomes very easy to start imposing patterns on things. And that is, um, you know, for me, that's something I find I need to watch out for. It's no different than doing um, quantitative research, right? And actually there's a real similarity. I was just talking to my friend about this the other day. It's a real similarity between doing statistics and doing analytic work, that what are we doing as statisticians? We are trying to find hidden patterns, right? So I do something, a statistical technique, something like factor analysis, right? Which is a technique that was, um, you know, a big part of my training when I was coming up. I worked with a guy who was, a student of Cattell, right? Cattell is the famous factor analysis guy. I worked with one of his students, was my advisor. And factor analysis is, is where you measure a bunch of things and you determine a pattern of things underlying, you know, sort of the surface level, right? They call them latent, latent uh, variables, right? And so this is, this is like, you can, metaphorically, this is like what you do with your patients. You know, you are seeing a certain, you're hearing a surface level thing. You're hearing the manifest parts of a dream 
and then you are working back to the you know the actual latent content underneath it the actual meaning right that's what we do as statisticians as well right and we have rules about how we do that and everything you know um and and you know we try to do it in an objective way as possible um you know and probably you know the more objective research is just that it's a little more objective there is some artistry to it um you know, we have a little more of the side of the objectivity and in the analytic world, we have a little bit more of the side to the subjectivity uh, because the subjectivity is really important, right? You also do have to use yourself as an instrument for perceiving the patterns. And so you need to have that there. You can't completely get rid of that. You know, statistics where my personality doesn't matter. You know, as long as I know technically what to do, you know, I can run the computer, I can measure the variables with a test or something, it doesn't matter. In the analytic world, our personalities matter. You know, we have, we have, we're, we're the instrument. And so we have to, we have to, we can't, we can't eliminate the subjectivity, right? But we have to sort of keep an eye on the subjectivity. I guess that's what I'm trying to say, you know, a little bit. We don't want it to be overwhelming, right? We're gonna keep a little bit of an eye on it, so. Yeah, yeah, and I've also, yeah. I've also, um, I also think a lot of people like in philosophy or maybe the humanities, like you said, maybe haven't been in analysis. And I feel like that's the best way that you learn how it works or what people are saying with all these theories is actually seeing these theories at work, like in your own life. Yeah. And I've yeah. even heard people say that like, that are teaching psychoanalysis, that this is a really interesting way to think like philosophically, but that it's not a treatment that anybody would use anymore. <laughs> right. That is a very common thing. I hear that all the time. My colleagues, that's what they say in their classes. Oh, it's not good. It's dead. Nobody does this anymore. And I'm like, there's an analytic institute 40 miles away and you can go down there and they've, they're doing all sorts of great things, you know? I mean, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate. Um, you know, and you will hear that some, I mean, actually in my, my, my experience, you'll find the humanities people, English people, whatever, much more amenable to psychoanalytic treatment. The psychology people are just like the worst, you know, they're, it's, it's much worse in our, our, our psychology programs because we're trying so hard to just be objective about everything, to be scientists. Right. And so we throw out all the non supposedly non-scientific stuff. Psychology is still not that scientific. There's still a lot of subjectivity into it, you know, but you know, the idea is to throw all that out and just be a science. And, you know, we're now, I think officially in America, we're, psychology is considered to be a STEM discipline, science, technology, engineering, math. We're considered to be what discipline, you know, so if we apply for a grant from, you know, wherever the National Institute of Science, we can use, you know, it's, it's, but it's not really. I mean, again, my colleagues would probably be mad at me for saying this, but it's not really, you know, it's not, we're not quite there yet. You know, it's not a bad thing, but, you know, we have to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We have so, especially in clinical psychology, because our, our clinical background of doing psychotherapy is so rich. We have so much and it actually really helps people. And the research has shown this over and over, and over the objective research shown this over and over and over and over and over again, that, you know, that psychotherapy can cure people of certain disorders, you know, that you cure people, not just give them a pill that they take the rest of their life, but you know, you're depressed. You can go to psychotherapy. You can finish psychotherapy. You can be cured of your depression, right? That is something that psychiatry and you know psychopharmacology does not do doesn't cure people of anything right but we actually have a tool that is really wonderful so we don't want to throw that out you know even if it's based in philosophy and in art you know there's an art form to it and you know you have to have some talent to be able to do it well let's not throw it out because we don't really have a great alternative you know 
And I would even guess that the CBT people or people who do manualized forms of psychotherapy, you know, the ones who are getting the good results are the ones who still have a talent for it. There's still some talent. There's still some subjectivity in there. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to acknowledge that because they want to be scientific. And, you know, I get that. But, you know, there's still some talent going on there. You know, people who, 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 who are doing CBT, who, who have a, a sense of maybe a natural talent for dealing with transference, right? Transference issues. They sort of naturally sort of figured out how to deal with it. You know, they have better results, right? The ones who don't deal with the transference, the patients just leave. They don't, exactly. get counted. they don't get counted as the negative, by the way. They just, they just dropped off the face of the map. That's another talk methodologically about, you know, the proper way to do the research, you know, and CB, a lot of CBT research, like behavioral research back in the day, there are some, you could take some umbrage with some of the things that they, way they, 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 uh, they cook the books a little bit, you know, but that's true everywhere, you know. But we have something, I think, in the analytic world, I think we have something really good to offer. And, you know, again, I just think that's, you know, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Kevin Volkan. For more links to his work, please visit the text accompanying this episode, including a link to his book, Dancing Among the Maenads, The Psychology of Compulsive Drug Use, available to download for free at freepsychotherapybooks.org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Decrepit promise of lies and cigars makes a home a boarded up storefront ready to bless for a promise and exercise Satan with every from a sensually trembling Randolph's unsure 
of just Christmas decorations the signaling life of electricity and steroid hubris. Father Flanagan will undoubtedly provide those answers. Although there was a hieroglyphs, the devil cut out bulging muscle launch working out. It's like the launch of rocket financing destined for growing in the outer inner space of others. A shortcut to slavery. There is much magic. I walk ahead. Jesus downtown. Amplified butterfly effects. Orlov spells. While passing our Russian mystics in the Himalayas. Other clouds really discarded and heavy as they seem. Wet lips. Well, promises of a total cost. We are $365 million per year. As always, our heads are round in black and white. So our thoughts can change directions on the street, interrupted by the harp abuse, we under are the banner of self-importance. Yes, it's actually not in agreement, and the American flag flaps proudly, whispering, threading, smash like crab, and smash it well. All echoes and interpretations very sane to red leatherette couch spasms are contortions and loud moans. This time the panties are all sisters having leading us up seductively to serene while yet long winding sermons. wondered, however, tolerance is that rock connection when at McGovern's you least expected these are life little satisfied. And you can always displays a Donald Duck genitals by the garment. We are yes, in love. We so want to wanted look at dissectives wax vaginas and penises. The woman whispered. We do. To which the man replied, We are well, ourselves, honey. In love, this dick is obsessed, suck itself, and yet fiercely independent. Different perspectives, ray, yet both leading have to an embrace, just a little existential bit. shadow. His of time experience. will come. And a creative reenactment between the lines of past tense Ray and looking for candy. And there, there is construction over and inside your purse. There's a detour. Why? People How? follow those signs because the painted Mexican skulls at Union Square tell us so. Bigger, while halting premature Mohammed's African mass to swallow the message of delight and power that most tells us you receive a mantle of a different nature. dungeon's red leatherette. If you think shit happens, park here. I told you, come. You should have secreted God's whole life when you stole crab meat juice. Christmas is coming up. This.